Uh, if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And if you do happen to grab one of these, on the bottom, I, I have little placeholders for what I think I'm going to title my message as I think and pray about how I'm going to write through it. And when I put this placeholder in, apparently I hadn't thought about what I was actually going to do because it says, give me steadfast or give me death. Uh, you can just cross that out. And I didn't want Mikey to have to reprint all these, but just put trials, tests, and temptations. That's what we're talking about today. Trials, tests, and temptations. Nobody cares. That's great. All right. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. Well, come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get the sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And I'm going to read you the whole section we're going through today. It's a little bit longer and I'm going to just kind of run through it. So I want you to get the whole thing in one shot before I just kind of pop through it and stuff. So uh, this is James chapter uh, 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when, he has con when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you and walk in wisdom and walk towards that, the crown of life and the, and the blessedness that you bring to us and that we would see the ways that we don't walk towards that, the way that we look at ourselves and don't listen to you. I ask that through all the trials and temptations that we walk through, that in the end we would grow in wisdom and glorify you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this 19-week series through the New Testament book of James. This is week four. And throughout the book, James will talk about how our lives begin to live out come as part of our faith. And people have said, oh, James is talking about work. James think is, thinks that we are saved by our works. Uh, James is not saying that. We'll talk about all this in another week. But with all the stuff that James really does talk about, I thought a really catchy title for the series was going to be James, A Faith That Works. I thought it was really smart. I thought it was really clever about this. But then I found out everybody else calls their series almost the exact same thing. Uh, Kent Hughes called it that. Matt Chandler called it Faith Works. Someone else called it Faith in Action. But it's all the same thing. And I just want to tell you up front that I am not as smart or as creative as I think that I am. So there you go. Uh, but a faith that works or faith works really is the message of James that we in our own ability walking just focused upon ourselves are never going to walk in the wisdom that God calls us to. The adversity we face is usually going to make us become self-centered and not Christ-centered if we do not have a faith that is calling us closer to him. We will almost never keep our eyes focused on the king and count our trials as joy unless the king is actually the center of our life. And so we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved, hence a faith that works. Chandler says this, with faith, with works, we stay steadfast on this journey, progressively sanctified, knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side. And I think that a faith apart from works is never really going to be sustained because how we live comes out of what we actually 
believe. And so we proclaim this truth of who God is and what he has done in our lives. And it is faith that makes us doers of the word and not hearers. And it is faith that keeps us humble and not proud. And it is faith that makes our tongues bless and not curse one another. It is faith that leads us to be a people who show mercy and not judgment. It is faith that teaches us to be a people that speak of God's good news every day to every tribe and tongue and nation. It is faith that will cause us to be a people to worship God for eternity. And all those things will be what James does talk about in the book, but James starts the whole first chapter of it talking about trials and adversity. Now, if you have a Bible, open to James chapter 1. It is on page 654 if you have an element Bible. And I'm going to just walk through this, and it can be a little philosophical. Hopefully, though, it's very practical because James kind of does something that's really interesting. He helps us to see how sin comes about and works in our lives. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, it looks almost like we're moving past the ideas of trials here because now he's talking about temptations. And you might think, oh, good, after three weeks of trials, I'm so glad we're moving past that. But James is doing something really cool here. This is all tied together, and he is actually still talking about trials. Now, if you haven't been here, trials and troubles are what James says are inevitable in our life. They're not just some little group of people over here, and they go through that. It's when, when we all go through it, we will all hit that. And James has been talking about some specific things so far. And today, when he gets to it, this is just like the junk drawer. It is everything else. And he will tell you that every decision you make in your life is going to walk you either towards Christ or away from him. And so everything that comes where you get to make a decision about something, that's a trial. That's a test. Now, could trials and tests be a difficulty in your marriage? Well, yeah, it could be. But a trial and test could also be if you have a good marriage and how you look at people who don't have the same marriage you do. Do you look down and think, well, they're not as good as we are. They don't communicate like we do. What's wrong with those people? It could be that as well. It could be you get COVID. It could be you didn't get COVID. It could be you got a vaccine. You didn't get a vaccine. It could be you're wearing a mask. You're not wearing a mask. It could be all those things. It could could be uh, you have a rebellious teenager in your home. What do you do with that? It could be in sync reunion tour. How do you respond to that? They're all trials. They're all trials. Trials and troubles come. And when you get to verse 13, it says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. And it seems like James might be changing the subject. Oh, we're talking about temptations. We're no longer talking about trials. But that's because you're reading it in English. In English, the word actually changes there. If you're in the Greek text, the same word that James has been using for trials all this time is the same word when he gets to temptation. And you might think, well, why is that? Why would translators of this verse translate that word differently here than it did earlier when it's the exact same word? Now, what you have to understand is that in Greek, they have, they have less words than we do in English, but the language is much more nuanced than English. And so what surrounds the word and how they write it, it gives the idea of where the writer is going with this. And James really is doing something really brilliant in this. What he's really saying here is that God tests us, but God never tempts us towards sin. Like God may allow a test or a trial to come into our life, a circumstance from the outside. But if that leads us into sin, God did not bring the sin himself. Every trial, everything can lead to a temptation, but we do not have to sin in our response to it. The test may come from God. He may allow something, but the temptation comes from the inside. 
That's where James is now going. And what we see is there are a number of things about temptations and trials and sin and how they work in our life that we, I think, fail to understand or even consider. I sometimes talk to people and they will tell me that they haven't sinned in a couple years. Like, I'm doing so well. And I'm like, whoa, Satan got kicked out of heaven for pride. (laughs) It's like we are a people who so easily fall into sin that we don't even recognize it half the time in our own lives. And James' point is there is evil in the world. We all see it out there. The world's filled with it. You know, why do we treat each other the way that we do? Why do things keep happening the way that they do? Why no matter who gets into power, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independents, why is there always still evil? Why is there still oppression? Why do they just keep coming? And James's answer is, it's in us. It is in us. N.T. Wright once wrote this, if you are true to yourself, you will end up a complete mess. Completely true. He then goes on and says, the challenge is to take the self you find within and to choose wisely which impulses and desires to follow and which ones to resist. And this is kind of what James will do today, help us to begin to understand some of that. I'm going to give you a standard three-point sermon. We're going to walk through three different things. And here we go. Uh, The first one is this. All trials can lead to temptation. All trials can lead to temptation. And this is really any change in our existence whatsoever. Any decision you get to make can lead you towards Christ or further away from Christ. And therefore, according to James, those can all be tests. Like in verse 9, if you fall into poverty, well, that's a test. Verse 10 says, if you fall into riches or success, that's a test. Every difficulty, every good thing, every blessing, every adversity can be a test. And they will either make us wiser and trust Christ more, or they'll make us more foolish and respond by looking at ourselves. If we handle it properly, in verse 12, James says, we move towards the crown of life. If we mishandle it, we move towards sin and temptation and death. And if you could really condense the first 18 verses in the book of James, it would kind of be this. Trials come, count them as joy because God is good and he longs to lead us into wisdom and trusting him. But we don't understand that many times in the midst of our trials because our trials overwhelm us and we don't typically see what God is trying to do. And so today, if you are going through something, I know it's difficult, but try and set that aside a little bit and just walk through this with me to kind of hear where James is going. So last week, James talks about poverty and wealth. Uh, Having lots of money or having no money can change us in our character depending on how we respond to that. If we speak of a biblical example, not law, but in a biblical example, God calls us to be a people who give generously. And one of the examples throughout the scripture is this thing called a tithe, 10%. Now, social research has shown that when people start giving away 10% of their income, that's a pain point for almost every single person. It's like, oh, wow, that really hurts to get there. I think that's why God chose it, to get to the point where it's like, I'm not going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on you. If you want to give over 10%, all of a sudden, you got to figure out, what am I going to give up in my life to begin to do that? And this is why a lot of people don't even get anywhere near 10% in their giving. But whether we have a lot or a little, that's a test. What are we going to give? Are we going to be generous in our lives? Are we going to hoard? Are we going to give away? And no money can either make us hoard or make us generous. Uh, There's these studies that keep being done about how people give in their lives, and it's actually stayed consistent through COVID. And what they show is that people who make $25,000 a year or less give on average 4% of their income away. People who make on average $100,000 a year give on average less than 1% of their income away. So in the end, they give about the same amount of money, which is to say if you're really wealthy, you have nothing to brag about. But why is that? 
Why? When people make more, they tend to give less. Well, usually when we start to make more, riches tempt us into believing that our luxuries are necessities. And that's a test. It goes to what James is talking about. Every trial, everything in life will affect us in one way or the other. Every encounter we have is going to change our lives. Make a lot of money, don't make a lot of money. Both those things are tests. And we're either going to be pushed towards what James says is the crown of life or pushed towards ourselves, which leads to death. And this is why we're supposed to walk and live in wisdom. So let me give you a personal example from my life. I'm, I'm not someone who likes to tell you stories about my life unless I'm making fun of myself and I think they're funny. This isn't so much. Uh, but let me just tell you about being a pastor. All right. uh, I, have, I have run into a lot of people throughout my years who say that they want to be a pastor, but they really don't want to be a pastor. They want to be what they think a pastor is, and that's an easy life. Uh, I was a youth pastor for years, and some kids would be like, I want to be a youth pastor, because all they saw was all the fun things I did with them, right? and not all the other stuff that went along with it, like dealing with their parents. <laughs> but all they saw was all the, all the fun things that we always did, not really the job that's behind it. And even today as a pastor, a lot of people see like me, we get up here and we talk and things, but they don't see all the stuff I do during the week. I'll tell you, most pastors don't have an easy job. Mine isn't because I got to deal with all of you. I'm kidding, sort of. Anyway, uh, now, if you go into working as a pastor, right, there, there, this is what is called vocational ministry. And vocational ministry really works just about like any other job. You go to school, you have life experience, you submit a resume somewhere, and people will take that. And some people like, we call you or we don't call you. If you submit your resume to a job and somebody calls you, well, that's a test. How do you respond? Do you get a big head because they called you? Or you're like, you get more afraid. What, you look more towards yourself. If nobody calls you at all, do you spiral down into depression? You know, what's, what's your response to those things when that happens? Uh, at Element, you know, we, we plant a church, and we believe everything rests on God's shoulders, and God, please bring the dean people. But if he brings people, how do we respond to that? Is it humbleness and grace for what God has done, or do we get a big head and look at ourselves? And then COVID hits. Right? And then what happens in COVID? Churches stop meeting. We open back up again. We still have more people watching online to come to services, and services look smaller. That, that's a test. How do we respond to that? Some people have said, we'll just stop doing the live stream. That'll make people come. And I'm like, that is not what we should do. But it's, it's a response. It's a test. How do we respond to that? And imagine if a church just keeps shrinking and shrinking and nobody comes. Then what do you do? What kind? That's a test. How does someone respond to that? Because it does rest on God's shoulders but it's very hard not to realize that it also sits on mine or upon our staff. And that's a lot of weight to carry. And that weight can either make you a better pastor, a more resentful pastor. It can make you a lazy pastor. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. God's going to do whatever he's going to do and just get really lazy in that. I mean, if God has given someone great people skills, I think you could be a pretty lazy pastor. I do not have great people skills. You know this if you talk to me. So, you know, it's, but it's a test. If you are mildly successful in any regard in a church, people start to view you as a religious authority. That is a test. What do you do with that? And when I say religious authority, I don't mean at family functions they ask you to pray. I mean, they do, but that's not what I'm actually talking about. I mean, if I go somewhere and someone introduces me, oh, this is Aaron, he's a pastor at Element. People do two things at that moment. They say, they think, uh, is this guy really good enough to be a pastor? So they watch you much more strictly to see what you're going to do. Or they judge you thinking you don't know how the real world works because you don't have a real job. 
And I've got a test in that. How do I respond? Do I try and respond and make people laugh and think I'm funny and maybe say or do things I shouldn't do to make they think, them think I'm more cool than I actually am? It is, it's all a test. Now, being this you know, religious authority that people look to a lot of times is weird because you can talk to somebody and you can say, how's your life going? And they'll be like, oh, da, da, da. If I ask someone that question, and especially in my office, I have seen people sit back, their eyes glaze over, their entire life flashes in front of their eyes. And I'm like, yeah, what am I doing with my life? What's going on? It, it, is like, it is like I am God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they are like Adam with an apple going, bum, bum, bum. oh, no. Uh, it, it is the weirdest thing in the world. What do I do with that? That can give me a big head or it can make me humble. What do I do in that? I mean, there, there are all these things that we go through every single day. Be, because I, people see me as having a greater connection with God than they do, people ask me all kinds of advice for all kinds of things in their lives that I may not have any idea what to do except glorify God with your life. That, that's a good one. And people think that I have this connection that they can never have with God, and that's completely untrue. But people say when they look at that, and that can either make me much more humble or it can make me get a really big head and think I'm better than other people. And I have met a lot of pastors who think they are better than a lot of other people. In normal life, we all have ups and downs. Sometimes you are more loving and sometimes you're not. Sometimes you drive really well and sometimes you drive like me. Um, sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you read the Bible, sometimes you don't. But everything hopefully draws us back to God. But one of the problems with being a minister is that every few days I am in front of people. And I've got to talk to you about how God does have a wonderful plan for your life, because he does, and that he is good, and he is gracious. And I believe all those things. I mean, down to the deepest parts of who I am, I believe that God is good. But what if I'm not feeling it at a given time? What if I'm having a hard time that week? Imagine you're having a hard time in your marriage. My job is to say, marriage is great. We need to work these things and serve one another, and there's the beauty of what that looks like. But what if I maybe had a fight with my wife before I got up here this morning? I didn't, by the way. <laughs> but but what, if, what if I did? What if I did? Then what? Then what? And if you're single, I say, singleness is great. It is wonderful. God has a plan for you in that, and he can use so many gifts in your life when you're single. It's simply amazing. Let's trust God in that. And being a pastor should make me much more genuine in my life, but I don't always feel the freedom to do so. This is what James is talking about. What do we do with every decision and trial that comes into our lives? What do we do? And obviously this happens in my own experience, but everybody has their own experience. You can be a stay-at-home mom to a CEO of a company and you still have those questions. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, those things can humble us or grow us and, or they can make us more prideful. I have seen stay-at-home moms very prideful. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Look at all those other losers who go to work and don't take care of their kids. I've seen people who go to work and judge stay-at-home moms. Look at that stay-at-home mom. Probably eats Cheetos and watches soap operas all day. Uh, and, and then I've seen homeless people prideful. I live in a box. What's wrong with you owning a house? It, it's, it's crazy. We all do these things. Everything that we go through is a place where we get to make a decision. Well, I love Christ more in this. Will I focus more on him in the midst of this? Or I'm going to focus on myself. Everything that we go through, whether it's adversity or whether it's blessings. Does that make sense? Okay, let's start over. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to start over. Okay, so second thing in this is 
what are trials and then what are temptations? What, what are those things? So verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I mean tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now you may feel like you have heard this a million times. If you go to Element, you'll hear it a million times more, I'm sure, but there is only one cause to our sin. And that is we want to sin. That's it. Nobody makes us sin. No condition makes us sin. No one gets the blame except ourselves. And James says we must not make this mistake where we confuse the cause of our sin for the occasion of our sin. What that means is occasion is like the test. It's like the trial that comes into our life. But if we sin, the cause of that sin is our own desire. Imagine it's like this. You're in high school and you're taking algebra and your algebra teacher gives you a test. Then what do you do? How do you respond to that test? Well, how you do on that test is going to come down to how well you studied, right? It's not the teacher's fault. Well, it could be if they're a bad teacher. But, you know, what's the purpose of a test? It's to show you you. Did you, were you disciplined enough to learn the material or not? The test doesn't cause you to fail, It is the lack of discipline in learning the material that causes you to fail. And I know every student says dumb things like, oh, if the teacher didn't give me that test, I wouldn't have failed. But it's not the teacher's fault. I think it gives people much more dignity to tell them you're mistaking the occasion for the cause. I'm going to give you an extreme example, okay? Uh, Child abuse. I mean, I don't really want to think about child abuse, but take child abuse. Studies have shown that most people who abuse children were themselves abused as children. But we cannot say that that earlier abuse caused that person to have to abuse children when they get older. You have to come to the place where you give the people the dignity of saying, though you have been abused, it does not mean you have to abuse. It gives people dignity to say that we have responsibility. You're not a machine. You are not pre-programmed in this. And I'm not saying our hearts and our minds and our wills and our feelings and all these things we've gone through aren't all bound in, up in but it's because they are. But what I'm saying as a human being, we have dignity and we cannot mix up the cause for the occasion. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote this book called The Freedom of the Will. I'm sure you've read it front to back a bunch of times, but if not, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version this morning. You're, you're welcome. And he will say that we as a people only do with the modicum of free will that God has given us, we only do what we most desire to do. So some people have said, my boss told me I had to lie or he would fire me. I didn't want to lie, but I had to lie, but it's not what I most wanted to do. And Edward would say, you wanted to keep your job more than you wanted to tell the truth. So you did what you most wanted to do. I was watching this TV show recently in this person goes into this bank and, they, and they're holding up and they tell this bank teller, unless you do this, I'm going to kill you. And so the bank teller does everything this robber tells them to do and where people get killed and buildings blow up. It was one of those TV shows, you know, and all that. And Edwards would say, you wanted to save your own neck more than you wanted to protect other people or your town. You only did what you most wanted to do. And it is liberating to understand that. It is humbling to understand that. But trying to blame our decisions on someone or something else, even God himself, takes the responsibility and burden off of ourselves. And in so doing, we destroy our humanity. And one of the points Edwards makes in Freedom of the Will is this is why we need the grace of God. Because when we choose what we most want to do, we do not choose God. We choose ourselves and run towards ourselves every day. We become more like animals or robots. And it is dignity to show people they're responsible because the Bible says we're made as living 
beings. When we are tempted and sin, it's because we desire to do that. So you have where James walks this. So the first one, you know, everything we go through our lives, decisions we make, we have the opportunity. Am I going to follow God or not? Am I going to look towards him or look towards me? Then when we look towards us, that moves into that realm of temptation. Well, then what happens? Glad you asked. So is James. This is how it happens. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, commentaries and commentators are really interesting in this because they all talk about how James is now using a sexual metaphor to describe how sin has its way in our hearts. When it says, no one should say, God has tempted me, and then each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed, that word there, it's seduced, and that is part of that sexual metaphor. So if you've been seduced by an evil desire, what then happens, test, move not towards God, but towards you, what happens is there is a conception. And after the conception, there comes a birth. And then there's even like a grandchild because sin becomes a mother and gives birth to death. And it seems like every time this phrase is used in the Bible, desire, evil desire, I think the King James Version uses the word lust there. They're all trying to find a way to translate this word in a way that makes sense, but none of those are fully what this word means. Now, in Greek, this word is epithemia. And when James says the essence of sin is this epithemia, it literally means an over-desire, an over-desire. The, sin, the way sin works is not necessarily that we want bad things. It's that Tim Keller says it's that we want things too badly. We want things too badly. He writes this, the way sin works, the essence of sin is not that we want bad things, but we want things too badly. That's what he says. It's our over-desires that seduced us. In the Old Testament, God never sees sin just as breaking the rules. What he sees it as is spiritual adultery. Like in the Old and New Testaments, we see that God is the husband and the church is the bride. And what the Bible then says is, so sin is not breaking the rules. It is when something becomes what we think we need to love or have in our lives more than God himself. Something becomes the author of our self-esteem, the thing that we look to to give us dignity and worth. We think we need this thing more than we actually need God. Uh, take a career, like a career. Uh, you, you know, you, like you put out your resume, hope someone hires you and yay, you get the job and it's so wonderful and you're making money, but then what happens when that career becomes the way you feel good about yourself? When that career becomes your identity? I mean, it's great to want a career, but when that career is how you feel happy about life, it's no longer a job. It has become adultery. You have to have it. That's how sin starts. That's the conception. There's nothing wrong with the career, but an desire for that career is seduction, spiritually speaking. Evil desires and lust, again, not wanting bad things. And I mean, it could be wanting bad things, but evil desires is wanting something so badly that you're essentially fatally attracted to those things. That could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be drugs, they become your lover. And as a result, they control you. Does that make sense? See how James kind of walks through this to help us to understand each of this? And this thing goes into my life. Here's God's giving me a modicum of free will. What's my decision in this? Oh, am I going to look to him? Am I going to look to myself? I'm going to look to myself. Okay, so then you've stepped into temptation. All of a sudden, that is making a conception inside of you, in your heart, and in your life. When you have those desires, there is a conception, which leads to the birth of sin. Conception is something that is inside of you that will eventually come outside of you. I don't need to explain to you the birds and the bees. You got how babies come about, right? Even something like a fight that maybe you are arguing with somebody you really care about and you just say things that are so mean and so wrong that you wish you could take back. Well, that started as an anger, a conception inside, and eventually it works its way 
out and it gives birth to sin and sin destroys. That's what James is saying. All sinful actions start as these little embryos when we don't make our decisions to give, to follow Christ and walk in wisdom with him. And James is brilliant because again, he goes back. Sin's not just breaking the rules. It's desire that conceives in our heart that will eventually lead to sinful behavior. If you have an over-desire for success, you will kill yourself with work. If you have an over-desire for love, you'll kill yourself if you don't get that person. And if you do get that person, you're going to kill your relationship because you're going to put so many things on top of it that it's just going to get destroyed. That's what James says. Sin leads to death. Death comes from sin, and sin comes from the conception. How do we ever get away from this? I love what Tim Keller says. He says, you got to work backwards. He says, if you think of sin as just simply breaking the rules, you might think, well, how do I get away from sin? I just say no. That's what I do. I'll just say no. You could handcuff yourself inside your house and never go anywhere, and you won't do some actions, but it doesn't stop the desire because the desire is actually still there. Thomas Chalmers, who's a Scottish preacher in the 1840s, said this, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. That's what we must do. This is why the gospel continually shows us what Christ did to save us where we are, that he is meant to be the center, the focal point of our lives. We cannot just say no to sin because sin, what it does, we see that James talks about, is it captures our imagination. And so we must fall in love with something, someone more beautiful. This is why Jesus must step out of the realm of the conceptual and into the realm of the passion of our heart. Because the only way to break this epidesire in our lives is to show it Christ, who is much more beautiful. And this is why Christianity is not behaviorism. It is not legalism. It doesn't say, just say no. Keller says this, you'll never overcome your temptations unless you're living in a holy consciousness of who and what you are in him. This is why an element is so important for us to explain the gospel every week that God rescues us and all the places where we are making our decisions to run from him, doing what we most desire. He comes to us in those places to restore us and bring us back to himself. Like last week, we talked about the pride that we have in our high position or our low position. The poor person is supposed to take pride in his low position, remembering the glory of grace and the relationship that God has given that restores that person to relationship with God himself. Well, what does the person in a high position, the rich person do? They deal with the temptation to arrogance and pride and living in their luxuries by remembering the glory of grace and the relationship that God has bestowed to bring us back to himself. How do we, in every single decision we make when we run towards ourselves, how do we come back to the place to understand and see the beauty of Christ? We understand the relationship that he has offered to us in himself by bringing us back to himself. The way we break the grip of sin on our heart is to understand the gospel and see Jesus as he is. Again, this is why we talk about the gospel every week at Element, because I want to have the Holy Spirit do his work in your heart and your lives so you would look at Jesus. Because when we follow ourselves, it brings death. When we follow Jesus, it brings new lives, and our lives are meant to be centered upon him. And I think James is simply brilliant in how he walks through each of these pieces with us. Because it gives us dignity that God created us a certain way and that God will allow trials to show us us. But when those trials make us run towards sin, he's not making us sin. We do that all on our own. It is the salvation by grace that he brings to us that we can never merit on our own. 
This is the beauty and the grace of the gospel that God restores us to himself, that he is so much better than we could ever understand because we always want to run towards ourselves. And where God is God-centered, he is also a God that has stepped into our lives to rescue us, to bring us back to himself because he loves us. I'm going to invite the band to come up, Sands Drummer, since we still don't have one. Um, And I'm going to invite you this morning, if you would like to take communion, to do that, because communion is this reminder that brings us back to understanding the beauty of what Christ did to bring us to himself, to draw us to himself, to rescue us. When we are most running away from him and doing our own thing, what we most want to do, which is almost never what he wants us to do, he is the one who steps into our lives to draw us back to himself. And so you take a cracker and you break it. It reminds us of Christ's body that was broken. And you drink the grape juice as a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed because our body being broken and our blood being shed could never cover the multitude of sins of our life. And this is why Christ gives himself for us. And he gives his righteousness to us as a gift because he is gracious and because he is good. If this morning you need someone to pray with you, maybe you have some desire in your life and you're running after it and it is just destroying you and you want someone to pray with you, grab Justine at the Welcome Center. She will connect you with one of us today. And we will pray with you and talk through that a little bit to understand what God is doing in his restoration of you. There's offering boxes next to every door we give because God has been so generous to us. So we simply become a generous people. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to God's generosity first given to us, as really everything in our lives is. Everything is really this response to what God has first done. I'd encourage you to grab those sermon notes uh, in the back. There's some questions in there. You can walk through those. Uh, you can read a little sermon summary of what we talked about today. And there's a thing that says, you know, how does this apply to my life this week? And maybe it applying to your life. Think about what you are most desiring. You know, and, and what you desire may be a good thing, but has that good thing become an ultimate thing? And has it overtaken Christ's place in your heart? Those are the questions we ask. Because we want the object of our faith to be Christ and him alone. Because in that, we will be a people who live in this world in the way that God calls us to because we'll be focused upon him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would have us understand all the ways of what James is talking about right now. How he is moving us forward to understand our tests, the trials we go through, And how so many times in that it leads to our own temptation that then moves to places of death. And have us begin to see what you have done to rescue us from those places that we have run towards. And that we'd be people come back and say, Jesus, we love you. We love you more than we love these things. And that there is a restoration and a healing that comes from your redemption over us. That you have led us out of our bondage. And you've brought us into your promised land of grace and life and relationship with you again. Father, it is so easy to get off track You give us so much grace to be able to make all these little decisions in our lives every day. And so often our decisions do not bring us back to you. 
They bring us to greater levels of frustration. They bring us to greater levels of self-focus and irritation and thinking that we ourselves are the center of the universe because we got to make this decision. And we cease to see our trials as grace from your hand. And I ask that you begin to help us to see that. And when we understand the great restoration that we have received in you, that we begin to live that out in our lives and the world around us. That we would be a people who are known by who has captured our hearts. And it's you. And that the world would see and know the graciousness of a God who rescues us even as we run so often from you. That you draw us back to yourself and that there is such deep grace given to us. Have us be those who live in that grace every day. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a few moments here just to think about what God is doing in your own life. What, what desires are you running towards now? And because I know, I know we're, we're sitting in the middle of going into the third year of this pandemic that's going on. And many times the center of our heart's desire becomes our own irritation at what is going on in this. I asked a friend of mine who's really irritated about all this that's going on, not that I'm not. Uh, but I said, I said to him, are the people you listening to and are the things that you run after, are they making you focus more on Christ or more on your irritation and yourself? And he goes, my irritation. I'm really angry right now. And I said, I, I know, <laughs> I know. What has captured our hearts? Talk to God about that. And then come take communion. Then worship with us. In a couple songs. Allow God to do his work in your life. And then when you step outside of these walls, continue to walk in that understanding. God, be my desire. Be my desire.